Hello, my name is Daklan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode, a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another, games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest today is Bennett Foddy. Bennett is the creator of Quop and Gurp and uh, lots of other fun uh, to say video game titles. He's also a lecturer at the NYU Game Center in uh, New York. Also an incredible life story. He was a philosopher for many years. He was also briefly a member of the, the band Cut Copy. He made adverts for Fartin Monkey Ringtones. It's an extraordinary story. I'm very excited to uh, to bring it to you. And, and very uh, appropriate because this is a very exciting milestone for me. This is episode 50 of the show. I mean, officially, it's episode 54 if you count the autosave episodes, but as I've said in the past, you don't count them. They are not canon. Uh, they are essentially fanfic for uh, Robert uh, Ashley's wonderful A Life Well Wasted podcast. Uh, but episode 50, I mean, that that feels it feels like a, a thing. Uh, so obviously, now I've, I've started a Patreon and I want your money. <laughs> um, I don't really want your money. What, what episode, like... I wanted to get to episode 50 to see if I would keep doing it, you know, if this wasn't... Like, I started this show because it was a show that I wanted to listen to, and there was nothing like it at the time. Um, so so I started it, and, and it's been wonderful, and I've been so delighted with the response I've got from, from listeners. Um, but now it's episode 50. I have started a Patreon, and it's not to make any money from it. It's essentially to prevent me from losing money uh, by making it, because I, I, I spend couple hundred pound every year on hosting the podcast and I had to buy equipment and and I would like to travel to more events like last year I did the a live show at Game City in Nottingham um, and I didn't get paid for that it cost me a bunch of money so if, if anyone is able to chuck in a pound or two that would all help I, if I can break even that is my goal I have put some lofty stretch goals on there but they're, they're, they are not a uh, I'm not expecting to fulfill them, but when you're starting up a Patreon page, there's all oh, set a lot of goals. So I'm setting a lot of goals, um, but really it's just so you know this this doesn't cost me anything. I don't expect people to pay a bunch of money, but if you've got a spare couple of quid, it's always massively uh, appreciated. If you don't have any money, obviously it doesn't matter, um, but you can still support the show. You know you know what's coming. Uh, you you rate and review the show on iTunes. I got two last week after my. Uh, relatively impassioned plea so you know clearly it works if i just keep if i just keep saying rate and review on itunes rate and review on itunes people will rate and review it on itunes and um, but but this isn't a show to shill this this is a, a wonderful milestone and i just wanted to say like a huge thanks to everybody for listening um i've, I've got so many lovely messages and tweets and it's a real like purely being able to do the show and chat to these people and have these amazing discussions is is a thrill enough in itself but the fact that people seem to really enjoy it um it genuinely does mean mean a lot to me so so thanks very much if you'd like to get in touch with the show you can email us it's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com and we're all over social media it's at checkpoint show on twitter and it's forward slash checkpoints podcast on facebook it's very important to have consistent branding it's 50 times in a row i've done that joke now um uh 
Oh, talking about the Facebook page, I mean, there's not much on the Facebook page. It is just links to the show, but I'm one like away from 100. So, you know, please do give it a like um, if, for my own self-esteem, if, if nothing else. Um, okay, I mean, I, I don't want to go on too long, but I, I genuinely did want to thank everybody. And um, I really hope you, you, you enjoy the show. And if you do, please do share it around, tell your friends, etc. It's been an absolute pleasure. And here's to uh, many, many more. I mean, I've certainly got a lot recorded already, so there's going to be at least another six. So we'll see see how much further than that we go. Um, yeah, okay. Let's not get too sentimental. It's only 50 episodes. Thanks very much for listening, everybody. I'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest. But until then, let's get on with the show. Okay, so let's do a, a formal introduction for the purposes of the show. So, uh, Bennett, mm-hmm. welcome uh, to Checkpoints. Thanks so much for, for coming on. If you don't mm-hmm. mind, would you introduce yourself? Uh, sure, absolutely. Uh, my name is Bennett Vardy. Um, I'm an indie game designer in New York City and also a professor at the uh, NYU Game Center. And you're also, like, this was something I've, I've been, uh, as I was researching, I, I, w- I wasn't sure where you were from. And this is this is fine now that you've you've had you've kind of finalised that you're clearly Australian or are you Australian? I am Australian. Yeah, I am Australian. I was uh, b- born and raised in uh, in Melbourne, Australia. Okay. Uh, where I lived up until I I uh, finished my my uh, PhD um, back in 2007. And uh, you know, at the time when I left, you know, I was not working as 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 a game designer, uh, although I'd started uh, to to work on games. Um, and I feel like at the at the time, the kind of community of, of games, the community of independent games in particular in, in Melbourne was really not present or at least not visible yeah. uh, to someone who was starting out. And in the subsequent, uh, I guess, nine years, it really seems to have flourished. So, I mean, I, I haven't been there for that, but um, I think that's true. One of my most sort of major cities around the world that, you know, it's, it's, it's right. the new sort of thing. And you think that makes it sound like quite crass, but no, it's 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 <laughs> certainly like a, a burgeoning art form, and there are there are very definite scenes uh, around sort of indie gaming, like they used to right, be around I, music. I, and I guess that's right. Like, I mean, I guess that's right. I just I just think it's a particularly successful and cool scene in Melbourne right now, as far as I can tell from afar. It's a particularly um, successful and cool city, though. So that's right, maybe that's why. Um, <laughs> Well, Ben, let, let, let's go. Let's go right back then. So, um, growing up in Australia, if you can remember, what was your very first experience of a video game? You know, I was thinking about that, um, and it, I, I know it must have been very early in my life because we bought the f- the first computer we bought was when I was three, or my parents bought when I was three or four years old. They bought an old uh, like a XT. Or an eight, like a an old uh, IBM compatible computer, the monochrome screen. Okay. And I do remember that being the first computer we had in the house, and I suppose it had games on it, but I remember quite clearly that I was not really allowed to touch it. And so then when it? I was, was maybe it for, though, it was it's for quite rare I think it was to have for, computers in the house at that sort of time. 
uh, you, you know, you know what people were like back in, at that time. It was there was a sense that if you would miss out, you didn't want your family to miss out on the computing revolution. And everybody wanted there to be, but 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 they were really being sold. Particularly the the IBM compatibles were being sold as uh, as for work, you know, for learning yeah. uh, mathematics and word processing and so on. My parents uh, were academic uh, psychologists, and I suppose they thought they would write um, papers uh, on the on the computer. Um, but then when I, I guess when I was about five, they wanted a, a computer that they weren't scared of me using. Um, so we, we bought a, uh, a ZX Spectrum, a Sinclair Spectrum. Uh, and I guess that was my first opportunity to really play video games. Now, trying to think of what the first one I had, I don't have a clear impression. I do know that I was just sort of instantly fascinated uh, with with video games from from the first moment, and <clears throat> looking back, thinking about it, I mean, think knowing my dad, I, I think he would have been satisfied with the with the pack in whatever was packed in with the with the Spectrum at least in at first, and so probably was something like Breakout yeah. or uh, one of those Spectrum Pac Man clones. Uh, we 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 had uh, we had a couple of those uh, Pac Man clones that were so popular on the Spectrum at that time, and that was probably uh, that was probably the real. Uh, the real moment, but the the first game that I ever really loved and can remember playing in a in a kind of obsessive way would have been uh, on the same computer, uh, Alienate by uh, by Ultimate Play the Game, who went on to become yes. Rare. Uh, so that's a like a isometric puzzle platformer. It's actually quite hard, but I was kind of captivated by that. And I guess that's 1984 or 1985. That seems like it's it's about right. So that's really the one I have the clearest memory of. And it's interesting that the the Spectrum was your first introduction, like for for several reasons actually. Firstly, that you wouldn't have, like, would that literally have been the first time you'd have seen a video game? You wouldn't have necessarily seen them in in arcades or anything like that. Well, my parents wouldn't have let me into an arcade when I was five years old, but it, it did come it's to happened. a time it's quite soon afterwards. Before. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, I mean. Arcades were not as big of a thing in Australia as they were elsewhere, but they were around. And yeah. I was definitely, by the time I was seven or eight, I was obsessed with them. So I constantly wanted to go. And it, it was a birthday treat. My yeah. parents would take me with uh, $5 worth of 20-cent coins, and it would take about 15 minutes to go through that because I was not very good at games. Um, but that, <laughs> And then they, they would let me stand there and watch some of the more competent older children uh, play for a while. And I, I had some kind of fantastic experiences from that age through to about like 11. Um, it just just where, where I guess my parents gradually grew in confidence leaving me in those places. Yes. Uh, would, would that have we been like seaside or, or bowling alleys or things like that? Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, it must seem very seedy and scary to them when they first go in. Smells bad. There's kind of like badly behaved children in there. But gradually they realize that everybody's just sort of playing the games. And uh, oh, I tried uh, there to was think in... what I must have looked like as a kid in certain places where I used to go and play arcade games, like really right, dodgy right, places. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and there are some shady characters around those places, Absolutely. but they're, they're not there to prey on, on children. And, uh, you know, it was generally fine. And, you know, as, as time went on, of course, uh, as, as some of the older arcade machines became cheaper or, or more obsolete, there st it started to be the emergence of these places where you could uh, pay a fixed amount of money and have like infinite play all yeah. day. And my, my, my parents loved uh, that, you know, my cousin <laughs> and I would, uh, 
we'd check in at the place that had all day arcade machines. Everything was on free play, and uh, we'd just play them for eight hours straight. What was what was a standout from that kind of era in the arcades? Um, I think that uh, the one that jumps to mind, uh, two that jump to mind. One is Ikari Warriors. Um, okay. I think one of the games that probably set up in me a long history of enjoying uh, simultaneous two-player games. Um, for people who haven't played that, it's sort of a top-down uh, run-and-gun game. Yeah. Um, with little rotating joysticks so you can kind of uh, aim in, in any direction and walk in, in the other direction. And then the uh, Star Wars, the, the Atari Vector arcade game, which had a really nice sort of, uh, I guess, X-Wing style cabinet and, uh, and a yoke controller that I still enjoy playing even even now. So, I mean, that that really was kind of an arcade standout. Oh, and I was, as I guess as a younger man, I was like, at, you know, seven or eight, I was completely obsessed with uh, Rastan or Rastan Saga, depending on where you were playing it. Yes, yes, um, yes. So the that barbarian like a, a side-scrolling game, game right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's you know it's pretty bad actually. It's 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 you know basically Conan. Yeah, uh, is walking from left to right and swinging swords at people, and it's not very enjoyable when I go to play it now. But I was just obsessed with that. I don't know. I don't even know why. It somehow resonated with my eight-year-old brain. <laughs> Um, the other interesting thing about about sort of first starting on the spectrum is, like I've noticed this because I speak to people it's essentially from all over the world, but there's a there's a very obvious divide between people growing up in in the UK and, and the US, where the majority of the mm. people I've speaking to come from, because there are very different kind of canons of games. Because the, in America they never had really the the spectrum or the the Amiga in that same way. You're only actually the second Australian I've spoken to. I spoke to uh, John Robertson, a comedian from Australia. And right. I, I'm assuming then they must have been quite similar. So would you have had, would you have grown up with the Spectrum and then onto the Amiga and things like that? Well, because that TV standard was the same as the I UK. Suppose, yeah. With Europe. Uh, yeah, we, we, we had to. When things were being plugged into TVs, we had to be getting the same uh, the same things as, as UK. And you know, in, in the 80s, uh, particularly Australia, still very protectionist trade trade policies, very high import duty, and uh, you know, so bringing the, you know bringing in um, computers from some places was easier than from others. And the other thing is, with those high import duties and everything, the the, the concept of of a console, like a cheap TV console, uh, that was so popular in the in the United States and in Japan. Just really couldn't catch on. They existed. I knew people with Atari 2600s and and with uh, later on, we, although we got it a couple of years late, the Nintendo Entertainment System. Yeah. Um, I knew people with those, but it was really rare. It was considered to be just sort of bad, uh, you know, bad value, I think. Um, so, and, so and, and the other thing about this is that Australia's got one peculiarity that makes it quite different from Europe uh, and more similar to somewhere like Poland or Russia uh, over that period of time, which is video games were and, and you know, and remain uh, extremely expensive in Australia for yeah. reasons of distance and, you know, uh, for, for reasons of ver various different sort of uh, complicated reasons. And they're expensive enough, just like, you know, just like many forms of popular culture, popular media, that Australia kind of became a, um, a country of pirates, so ironically, being a penal colony originally, <laughs> um, where the culture around video games was you definitely just pirated all your games. And you couldn't do that if you had a console, right? So that just made consoles straight out, you know, not just 
a little bit more expensive than a computer, but sort of wildly more expensive yeah. over time. Um, and, you know, all of the people I knew who played games uh, through elementary school and through high school um, had an, just an enormous collection of, of pirated games. And we would just binge on them. It was just uh, it was just like a completely different experience, I think, from from what most American households had. We would just have, you know, hundreds of games and we would we would play them all to some length, but never to very much depth because we didn't have to. It was always something else to move on to, something else. And I think that has really shaped the way that I've played games as an adult as well. Yeah, I mean, this this is a common theme, like the, especially with the, the home computers, but purely because of the the simplicity of, of piracy, and you know, so mm. why why not why wouldn't you? But like as a kid, you're not really thinking about you know the the, the moral um, implications of that. You're thinking, oh, I can get a hundred games on this tape. Amazing! Right, exactly. Give me a hundred games. I'd be lucky if my parents would buy me two uh, computer games a year, and they you know they did. It's not as though we didn't pay for anything, but. You know, it was the difference between having two games and having two hundred games. Yeah. And as a as a you know as a child that who didn't have any money, uh, that was just that was just it was a no brainer. Especially as the culture everywhere around me was a culture of piracy. And that, this is something actually you'll probably you'll know better than me. But during that time in in the, in the UK, especially, um, I'm sure elsewhere in Europe, but there was very much like a, a kind of indie game scene reminiscent of today. You know, of bedroom coders of people you know, making these grand, as basic as the, the equipment was, these grand kind of artistic gestures in, in video game form. Like, was there, uh, were there sort of Australian developers? Were there like Australian games? Like a lot of the people's favorite Spectrum games in the UK tend to be, have like a very specific kind of British sense of humor, like things like School Days right. or Rockstar Ate My Hamster or something, which you, mm -hmm. you get less yeah. and less of these days. But Manic what, what Miner. The, yeah, exactly. So did you yeah. did you have that for like Australia, essentially? You, you know, I, I what I don't want to say is that there were no people doing that in Australia. Of course, there were hobbyists uh, and there are one or two successful companies. So you, you'll have heard of uh, Melbourne House who did the, the Hobbit game. Of course, and then yeah. there was, uh, yeah, there was uh, Beam Software who did Way of the Exploding Fist, I guess, on the on the Spectrum. And, uh, you know, they made an, an Australian rules football game and and various other things as well. So they existed, but it's really not anywhere near to the same extent that that it happened in, in the UK. And trying to understand that, I think Australian uh, the uh, Australian educational system was much slower to get computers into schools. That's a big part of it. So, okay. you know, in the UK, you had the, the BBC computers in schools everywhere. Yeah. We didn't have anything like that. And uh, so which really made it... Um, more of a kind of a thing for for middle class families and it was like it was a little bit of a kind of elite thing to have a computer i guess in the early days um but also you know australia is is a funny place it it, it has uh, you know generated a lot of important inventions important science great philosophers so there's a good intellectual tradition in australia but yeah. i don't think australians would deny that there's also a kind of long history of anti-intellectualism and uh, that definitely uh, puts a dampener on, or at least did until I think the until at least the last decade, put a pretty heavy dampener on on kind of nerd culture, on geek culture in Australia. Yeah. It's really something that you had to do on the down low. Something that was difficult to find. You, know, I read about like in uh, in up in I guess Dundee uh, with uh, with Dave Jones and his little computer club of people that went on to form uh, DMA Designs yeah. and Rockstar. 
And it just seems like it was no trouble there to find kind of large number of, of like-minded uh, young people to, to kind of hang out with and to make stuff with. To be and fair, I think actually, in Australia though, that's sort of like difficult. With the, to, to compare the two again, though, this is Dundee in, in Scotland. And yep. much, much for the same reason I think there's such a, a, an excellent music scene in, in Scotland is because it's, the weather is terrible. Like there really right. isn't much to do outside. I genuinely do well, think well, that, is that a may big be factor. part of that. It may be, and you, that may be a big part of why uh, why there's still, I think, su- such a strong emphasis for Australians on you know playing sports and those sorts of uh, masculine activities that take place outside. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that it was it was a little bit of a um, it was a bit of an underground thing, a bit yeah. of a, a bit of an unusual thing. Um, at the time. And I, I just remember being struck when I moved. Well, first of all, when, when, you know, my my parents being academics, we would uh, travel around the world a lot and just being struck whenever we would go to the UK or especially to the, to the USA. Um, just, just how ubiquitous and just how woven into the fabric of daily life, uh, computers were and, and games were. And, and, you know, it, especially like then moving uh, to the to the states in in 2007, just suddenly you see like um, this was before smart slightly before smartphones really started to to be adopted. You'd you'd see people with with uh, games like handheld games consoles on the train, um, just playing them out in in full view of everyone, which was really not <laughs> something you saw in Australia at the time. And it just makes you think, well, this is actually. This is actually something that can be, um, if not taken seriously, at least accepted as like a, a part of everybody's kind of daily routine here. And it just is a really different flavor, I think. Absolutely. But but like as a kid, you know, the, the, a lot of people would have in, in the UK, especially there was um, lots of magazines supporting the various home computers. And, and in that there would be like sheets where you could type out simple games and stuff and a lot of people oh, yeah. did get their start on that so was that something do you think your your interest in making games was forged at that young of an age like on the spectrum oh yeah and we you know i used to get those uh those british uh, magazines you know people oh, cool. people like uh, future publishing i had uh, your sinclair and zap and and cnvg and we used to to go down to the news agent and and just absolutely hang out until those things came out and we just pour over every page and a lot seeing a lot of games that that would never be legally released in Australia. Yeah. Uh, and just kind of obsessing over the pictures um, was was really a kind of major part of, of, of the way that I uh, understood and digested games. But did you did you make games yourself? Did, did that sort of spark something in you at that young of an age? I think I wanted to, you know. I mean, I, there, was no, there was nobody in my family or amongst my friends who knew how to do it. So I would have a book and I would type in some listings and I would try to get it. But there's like a, you know, there was a, uh, there is a pretty steep barrier to learning programming. Uh, it's it's not it's maybe in fact not as as steep as it seems to people who are starting. I mean, as somebody who now I mean I now teach people to make their first games. Yeah, it's like that's that's a big part of what I do at NYU. Is so so I'm trying to get people over that hump. I just think it makes an enormous difference to a person's confidence just to have somebody to help. And I didn't have that, so I I tried you know probably a dozen times. Uh, over the course of my life, up until the moment when I um, I found the as a, like a I guess I was sort of twenty twenty eight year old or something like that I found the uh, the online forum TIG Source. Uh, okay, 
and uh, started to be able to see people's uh, development logs and to see them to, to ask questions and get help with that kind of thing. And I made a game in Flash and was over that hill. Suddenly it was something that that seemed like it was within the, the my power to do. But but prior to that, yeah, it had just been like false starts and false starts, you know, but on the on the spectrum programming in basic uh, and then later on the Amiga on the uh, and on the PC. Uh, it was just something that I, I was never able to get over that that hump until later in my life. So I mean, clearly that kind of the the support community was was a big deal. But as a kid growing up and just purely just playing games for the fun to play games, did you? Especially because I think you you mentioned how it was very much like a niche thing, like you didn't want it didn't want to do it in public. Uh, did you mm. did you form kind of friendship groups around games at that time, like growing up? I had a small handful of friends who were into that stuff. Um, you know, I, my my closest friend growing up um, is now the the singer from from the band Cut Copy. Yes, yes. Um, it's very it's very cool. In fact, I think you know NME once voted him you know like the forty third coolest person in the world. It's very very cool. <laughs> Doesn't play video games now very much, um, but we used to just constantly, just like every day, just just playing playing games like over and over again on whichever kind of platform we were we were able to get our hands on. And was that something that very much like that sort of stayed with you as you grew up? Like you were always just excited about the new games. I mean, you you obviously you went on to get an Amiga and a PC and stuff, so it must have right. had some effect. Yes, yeah, exactly. So we 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 just we, I mean, especially so so one of the things that happened was I guess we took a I took a trip with my parents. Must have been about 1987 um, to visit some of their friends. They were on a, you know conference trip. And we stopped to visit some of their friends in California, and they had an Amiga. And it was like such an obsession for me. Um, I probably just drove my parents crazy constantly begging for one. And I think there was a remaindered Amiga 2000 at my, at my mom's work from, uh, from a research project, from a, from, a, from a grant. And she brought that home. And then it was just like – that was like a, a, a big turning point because the Amiga – was it was really at you know in 1987 was really starting to hit its stride in terms of the kinds of games that you could get absolutely and because it was a disc-based system uh, those nice uh, three and a half floppies and because it had like a burgeoning uh, demo scene that uh, was also a piracy scene like starting to get really organized with people like Fairlight uh, in in Sweden and in Finland um, and Denmark. Uh, all of those games started coming down, flooding into into our country, and tools to also make our own copies. So one person managed to get a uh, uh, a copy of a game from a Fairlight BBS. They could uh, they could easily make copies for everybody else, and so it went from being like small number of of pirate copies on cassette for for the Spectrum or the Commodore 64 to being like uh, you know dozens and dozens of games. And so, yeah, that was a that was a big moment for me. And I was definitely I think of myself as a, having had an Amiga childhood. And but the, the thing that comes with having this ubiquitous selection of games and you, know, you can basically have basically like essentially whatever you, you want is it's hard to kind of focus in on specific games or get really stuck into a specific game. But are there games from that period that really sort of stuck out for you? I mean, there's games I played a lot of. Uh, I, I played a lot of uh, the fairy tale adventure, so weird uh, Zelda-like. Uh, I think it predates Zelda, maybe, or is about the same time. Made by uh, by 
um, Californian hippies. Um, it has like a real kind of hippie aesthetic through it. Uh, I played, I guess I, I played a lot of those CinemaWare games. You know, uh, it came from the desert and Defender of the Crown. And I think we spend a lot of time on whatever multiplayer game we could get our hands on. And there are a lot on the Amiga in, in just about every genre. So we played a lot of the uh, the the sports games, especially, you know, kickoff, sensible soccer, hours yeah. upon hours upon hours. Um, but, you know, I was it was funny because although I had an Amiga at home, I had all these great games. And I preferred it over everything else. Uh, if I could get my hands on an Apple II and play some different games, I was into that. So we'd go down to the public <laughs> library to play uh, summer games, even though I had an Amiga at home. I'd play Game & Watches. For me, I think this is was probably set up by, by uh, the kind of uh, culture of piracy, but, um, uh, you know, I, uh, it has always been breadth rather than depth. And it's not that I've never gone deep on a game. You know, I, I've played a lot of Dark Souls, just like most game designers have. And I've, I guess, b- back earlier, I played a lot of Elite and got reasonably decent at that on the 8-bit systems. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, in, in the sort of around the 2000s, I guess I played a lot of Counter-Strike as well. I was on that a lot. But overall, I think it has always been about playing a large number of games for a short period of time for me. That's just the the flavor of who I who I am as a games player. And is that like do you think you you get bored easily or are you just always excited about the new thing and that's always going to be better? I think you know I I don't have the longest attention span, right? I mean that's the that's definitely true. I do get bored easily, but that's that's only 10 or 20% of it. I think it really is that I like new ideas and i've always been most interested in new ideas i think one of the things that draws me to games as a medium uh over more established uh forms of media is that it feels like there are still a lot of ideas that are yet to be touched that we're i mean i'm sure that's true as well in in books i'm sure it's true in poetry and to some extent and and in storytelling but in games it's a, it's happening very fast you yeah. don't have to wait a long time between kind of major earth shattering uh, changes and new discoveries new experiments that fail are also interesting to me i love uh, the the stumps on the on the evolutionary tree of games there are, there is a number of different kinds of games that were briefly very popular and then nobody ever made another one in that vein ever again like the the top-down uh, soccer games we're seeing a little brief sort of retro revival of those now but you think about how popular uh, kickoff and sensible soccer were oh, absolutely yeah. in the uk and in australia and and just how that's the you know that's just not the thing that prevailed the thing that prevailed was the fifa sort of side-on model uh, and that kind of control scheme which was so disliked and derided when it first arrived uh, but through iteration, they've managed to kind of give it its kind of own uh, life and it's it's been able to be maintained where the other things died away. And for me, that's that's what's fascinating is is breadth of ideas. And, I, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for people who are interested in the other thing, uh, you know, people who only want to play uh, Counter-Strike Go. You know, I have friends like that or people who only play uh, League of Legends. And they play them in a way that I think gets at sort of deep uh, facts about those games, deep truths about those games and different kind of levels of play than I will probably ever achieve with any of those things. I think that's the sacrifice you make if you if you if you play broad rather than deep. Yeah. Um, but it's just, you know, it's not it's not a choice that you make for for those sorts of reasons. Right. I mean, I, I just I just 
have to i mean i'm I'm drawn to do to do this the way that i do it absolutely so i'm, I'm assuming then as you as you got older you would have kind of broadened your um collection of games as much as you could like did you move on to, to consoles and things like that yeah, consoles, I, I didn't own a console until a GameCube. And again, f- mainly for financial reasons because of how, how the economics of that works in Australia. Yeah. But I did move from the Amiga about 96, 97. And, you know, we were past the point where you could even pretend that the Amiga was going to live. And uh, I guess... <laughs> you hold I, I guess that we flame start... for a while. <laughs> yeah. I... Um, you know, there were always PCs in my household because my parents needed them for work. And we gradually moved our gaming off the Amiga and onto the PCs. And, uh, you know, I, I think it, it was sort of a rough transition in the mid-90s where the PCs were sort of in many ways more technically capable in the Amiga, but in, in other ways, like not harnessed very well at all. Uh, you think how proud, you know, the, like the id, the id software guys were so proud of the the smooth scrolling they achieved in, in Commander Keen. And, you know, in, in, in important ways it was a huge technical accomplishment to be able to get smooth scrolling platforming on an EGA PC but if you grew up on an Amiga it was just like it was just you know totally unimpressive yeah that's how, that's so how here is this kind are. of pinnacle of PC gaming at the time is, is Commander Keen and it just like as a yeah as, a, as an Amiga game you just like I can't even I can't even look at that <laughs> but then we reach start to reach the the kind of SVGA era and you start to have things like Age of Empires and uh, Total Annihilation, and then it's just then by that stage you you know if you're if you really love games you you can't miss out on that. I remember probably Command and Conquer was the that was the game that really that that made me desperately want a, a PC that could play it. Just seeing uh, screenshots of of that, there's just something about it. I think that communicates that it's a different kind of experience than you ever had on the Amiga. Now, obviously that form of game the the uh, the RTS was was pioneered on the Amiga with with Dune 2, and we played a lot of uh, the Settlers, that German game, which mm-hmm. is like an economy, like a real time economy building game. Which you know, those are those are good games, but yeah, really, it, the the real I think the PC moment is uh, Command and Conquer. That's interesting. Though. So yeah, yeah. So from that point forward, it was just all PC. And did you ever like how old would you have been around this point? I was born in 78, so I guess uh, we're, we're starting to be about 17, 18 when I really uh, transferred over onto the PC in a, in a big way. And so was there ever a point where you kind of drifted away from games? Because that kind of time period is generally when people will move away from games for whatever reason. Yeah, I, was, I have to say, I mean, I really I had a palpable sort of feeling of being an outsider on this front because all of my gaming friends went through a period like that. Um, and most of them eventually came back to playing games as like when they were more grown up. Yeah. But you know, when we were 15, 16, 17, 18, you know, all of the, all through all of those years. Yeah. I think people, people do go through it. It's, it's common to be like, you know, I want to, um, be more kind of outward looking and, uh, do more sort of, uh, normal person things for a yeah. little while. And like, especially, you know, young men have a kind of, a anxiety about sort of fitting into society. And it's like, being a, a games person is, can feel at odds to that, especially if you're living in a place which is not kind of very supportive of games as a, as a kind of cultural pillar. Uh, but I was, I think, into it too, in a too deep of a way. <laughs> I've gone too far. <laughs> None of that, one that... of the things that happened was I, 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 you know, I was 
in terms of Australians, because I had academic parents, we had the internet, I think, before a lot of uh, a lot of people did. So I guess I was 17 when we first got um, an internet connection, web browsers. And I was also into the kind of BBS thing as well, where you dial up with your computer to connect to another person's computer and you would like interact sort of in yeah. a proto-internet format. And there was a, a lot of like interesting gaming stuff ha- happening at those times that sort of carried me through uh, that period in a way like I was just too compelled by it. I was too... Uh, and I think as I started to kind of be able to live some of my life online, um, it was easy to find people who were still interested in games, even as my kind of high school friends were losing interest. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's almost identical to, to my experience of it, where I drifted away. But it was when I got the Internet and I got online and there were forums that really pulled me back in. Like, and I'd never really properly left because there was emulation which was a huge thing right. that, that emerged along the same time as uh, early internet and there's like, oh well, this is this is amazing i can play all those games i never got to play before i mean it's uh, not long after that it's in the 90s that the the multi arcade machine emulator mame suddenly yeah, appears right absolutely. still going strong still going strong we i just speaking to someone about that a few days ago uh, it's mm. it's a, a a wonderful and probably essential part of uh, video game culture yeah, I totally agree. You know, my latest uh, project, I'm oh, of doing course, a collaboration. Yeah, this is, yeah, this brings the modified version that. of it. Yeah, I mean, so that's, I mean, something, MAME has been a thing that has been part of my life since the 90s. Uh, it's, and so, it's yeah, my, my new, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've, I sort of dabbled with modifying it in the past. I made a, a modified driver for, for MAME so that I could play. Um, there's a game called Off the Wall. So there's two games called Off the Wall. There's one that's by Balicente, which is a tennis game, uh, where I, the actual controls for it are two spinners and uh, and like two buttons, buttons to walk left and right, and the spinner controls the angle of the the tennis player's arm. So you okay. actually are responsible in a kind of one to one way for for moving your arm around, and you can like it's funny. I think in the same way that Quop is is funny. Um, there's like a comedy to watching these tennis players like with their arms sort of extended straight out <laughs> rotating it sort of and you can play in a much deeper way than you can in other tennis games right because you can hit it backwards and bounce it off the wall you can hit it to yourself and then hit it to the other person there's all these different things that you can do but I you know I didn't have any way of getting a spinner to play this with so I wanted to be able to to pretend I had a spinner with a with a joystick and I so yeah I wrote a modified driver for that and uh, I guess got into my head that that you could make you could ha- you could do things with with emulators that were sort of like custom and that, that you could customize them in interesting ways. Yeah, I mean. So yeah, a new a new project is just like a, a massive uh, customization of of Mame. And this is multi bowl. Yeah, so this is multi bowl. Multi bowl is basically WarioWare uh, built into it, like built out of emulated games. So yeah. it has a like 300 different save states from different historical two-player games. Each of those save states is in a, like a balanced and exciting moment of those games. And at random, it picks one, loads it up, and it puts you in there with another player. And then when somebody scores a point or a, makes a basket or a goal or kills the other player, whatever it may be, uh, they get a point and it loads in a different random game. You keep doing that until someone has 10 points. So that, in a, in a way, is kind of an expression of uh, who I am as a gamer, right? It's like a, a, it's my oh, short attention span, yeah. my, my broad. Uh, and it's a way of bringing the kind of broad experience that I've had with, with games, particularly with those two-player games, to other people. 
um, you know, it's something that I've been interested in doing is I'm worried, especially being an educator in the United States, you know, here, everyone I meet who's my age knows the Nintendo, like the, the NES and the SNES games. Maybe they had a, a Sega Genesis. Um, maybe in the 90s they had a PC. Nobody had an Amiga. Nope. Nobody had a Commodore 64. Um, no, definitely nobody had a Spectrum. They couldn't possibly have. And I feel like it's it's a kind of a shortcoming in the in the especially in the designer culture here in the in the states that there is like so little knowledge of the, what happened in Europe. Uh, there's really good knowledge of what happened in in Japan and in America. Again, mainly for economic reasons and for the reasons relating to the TV standard, which was the same in Japan. Absolutely, yeah. But. But uh, it's just a it's just a shame that there isn't m more that's sort of known about the European side. So I'm always trying to kind of find ways of of helping to share those those games around so they don't get forgotten and they don't get kind of written out of history. Absolutely. I mean, you, you need need only listen to the back catalogue of shows, Bennett, and you'll see yeah. <laughs> the, the dividing line between the U.S. and American, uh, U.K. and American uh, video game childhoods. So uh, yeah. multiple, I imagine, like how that's that's got to be some sort of ip nightmare like that's never going to get an official release i imagine yeah i think that's right i, I think we can take it i mean my my understanding of how this works I, I may live to be corrected on this is we have a reasonable claim that it's fair use if we uh, show it at a festival absolutely but it, it would absolutely especially as each game is only played for 30 seconds you know it's really is just a small slice um but uh, fair use does not apply if you're if you're making things available on the internet. So we we won't be able to do that. But yeah, I think there are a lot. There is now a good enough uh, number of festivals and conferences and and you know public parties and so on around the world that we should be able to give it a decent showing. Absolutely, I hope so because it it looks it looks wonderful. Um, it's definitely it's a, it's it's a good time. You know, it's like a there's there's something quite transformative about playing. You know, we had to in testing it. We had to play two hundred games in a row. <laughs> there's something quite transformative about that. And there's there's something quite lovely about the fact that there's probably a lot of games that mm. are only good for those sort of couple of seconds, but they're really oh, good yeah, for those good. couple of seconds. So why not sort of let let their memory live on? You know. Yeah, or the you know, there's like I guess the majority of multiplayer games are not good if played in the kind of real way uh in 2016 you know they're too slow or they're too difficult to understand they take too long to set up um there are all these kind of design flaws in some cases i've just i've just reconfigured how the how the game is scored so for example rampage people remember quite fondly that arcade game rampage where you're a giant monster uh, tearing down buildings yeah um, it's one of the kind of it's comical and it's kind of wish fulfillment and uh it's, but it's not very much fun to play now. The platforming is just terrible. Um, and I was sort of thinking, I really want to have this in here, but I don't want it to be like who can score more points or who can avoid losing a life because that takes forever in that game, actually. It's really kind of war of attrition kind of yeah. stuff. And it's sort of designed that way to eat your quarters as well. So I um, instead I make the rule, I, I set it up so that the players are standing on top of buildings at two different buildings, but buildings that are close enough to jump to each other. And I make the rule that you lose if you touch the ground. So now it becomes a different thing. It's now a game where the, the kind of difficulty in moving around and the sort of like uh, slowness of, of the scoring and, the, and being shot by the kind of humans in it is 
part of it. It like becomes part, like a positive part of this. And it, it's, it, it becomes like a, a sort of like a, a completely different game. And I think for a 30 second slice, a better game. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that, that is a, a wonderful kind of tweak on this. I mean, things like that are super exciting. It's a, it, I say it's a shame. It's not a shame. I'm sure people spent many <laughs> hours and years of their lives making certain games, but still it's nice to have, nice to think that the option is there to kind of remix these kind of old games. Right. I mean, here's another one is, is Gauntlet. Uh, Gauntlet 2 in particular, I think okay. people loved that game. I mean, it really is a popular, like a popularly remembered anyway. Uh, but when people go to play it now, when you're not actually putting money into it, it doesn't work because it's a game where you're constantly losing your life and you're trying to get as far as you can before your life runs out. And that's something that has a sort of a meaning that is conferred by the fact that you paid in a certain amount of money to play. Yeah. But you take that away and you put it on an emulator, it just becomes a very, very thin experience with very little meaning. Uh, and I was like, I really wanted to have that. So the way that I did it is I went to one of those levels where uh, there's like a shining orb and when it touches you, it says you're it. And when you're it, all the monsters are running at you. And if you touch the other player, it makes them it, Right. So I turned it into a game of tag, and I make it that after 15 seconds, you have to try not to be it, um, <laughs> which which is a good game, right? You know, it's a game you'll only play for 15 seconds. You wouldn't want to play that for an hour, but for 15 seconds, that's a pretty good game. Absolutely, yeah. It's really, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm very excited about the whole uh, the whole prospect. So uh, I just think, you know, I feel like it's a kind of an area of design, just kind of round that off, like that that is I feel like we've just scratched the surface. I think there's a lot that could be done with this kind of collage thing, not just multiplayer games, but but single player kind of. I mean, I guess Fab's made that game uh, Rom Check Fail a while yes. ago, which sort of simulates this kind of idea. But I really think that we're using actual emulators. There's a, there's a lot you could do. It really would be like a fairly rich terrain for design. Well, maybe this is the, the birth of uh, a, new, a new tree on the video game evolution <laughs> that you mentioned earlier. Well, I would be happy if that was the case. Let's hope so. Um, <laughs> so around this time, then you, you're going to be sort of, you know, embarking on the, the rest of your life and going to university and things. So was it in, in your head that you wanted to, to get into games, that you wanted to pursue this? No, I just always knew I wanted to play games. I was always just spending an inordinate amount of time playing them. And I did have in my head that it would be nice to make them, but I really felt like it was beyond me. And I... You know, I had one friend in, in uh, college who uh, who was making games, and we kind of dabbled with making something. Uh, we made the classic rookie mistake, though, who which was to immediately embark on making something that was basically No Man's Sky. Right, okay. <laughs> uh, like a 3D procedural universe with every planet being completely procedural. And uh, we got as far as having a pretty nice, uh, because he's a great programmer, he had a nice procedural 3d planet that you could fly around on but uh, that That's was as impressive. far as it went well we didn't know what else to do right so at that point we didn't know <laughs> what else to do and you kind of as you do you run out of time when you graduate from your undergraduate uh, years and people go on to get jobs and it it's no longer a thing that you can do in your in your uh, spare time so uh that that was as far as that went um and i guess i sort of uh, continued to to play games and got gradually drawn into the world of uh, the the see me uh, shady world of, of academic philosophy at that time and it was that just a, a natural kind of um curiosity that you had that led you then towards philosophy that's just that seemed the most appealing thing that was what you were most interested in 
uh, yeah, I had a double a double degree, one in in physics and one in in philosophy. Uh, and I, I, one thing had been become clear by uh, the time I graduated in 1990, uh, 19, sorry, two thousand and one, which was that I definitely wasn't going to be a a, a, a physicist. Okay, I mean, was not. I was just not good enough at it. I mean, there, you, you, it really is a humbling experience to do a physics degree because something like ten percent of the students just can just do it, like Mozart, and the other ninety percent can struggle and can get along if they work really, really hard, but that was not really in my nature. So, um, so I knew I didn't want to do that. And the other thing that I knew is absolutely for certain, I didn't want to be an academic because my parents were academics and I didn't like the look of it. Uh, so I, I, I sort of potted along for a year and I took odd jobs and I started to take uh, odd jobs from, uh, from philosophy professors, sort of helping them with their research. And then gradually the kind of gravity of that pulled me into it. <laughs> But there, I mean, there, there is something very romantic about that, about the thought of I'm going to, because most people's probably um, idea of a philosopher is someone who just sits and ponders all day looking out of a window. Yeah, I mean, that's, you do a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of that. You read stuff, you sit and ponder, and then you write stuff. That's how, that's basically how it works in, in philosophy. Um, so... It's interesting because in philosophy, more so than any other, like any other part of my history, philosophers are incredibly hostile to games, just almost, almost to a, to a man and a woman, like, like every single person that I would meet. That was going to be my and next they, question, just how, how, right. does, how does gaming fit into philosophy, but clearly not very yeah, well. They, philosophers hate technology. It draws people who like old things right i mean i don't mean this as a criticism it's just an aesthetic yeah. and it makes sense right i think aesthetics really is a lot of what draws people into anything um but in philosophy you're going to spend a lot of time with books you're going to spend a lot of time in libraries and you're going to spend a lot of time going to talks and seminars where you sit in a wood paneled room and somebody with no uh no powerpoint slides speaks for an hour and a half and if that sounds sort of oppressively old-fashioned to you you won't get into it um, so, so that's part of it is that, that philosophers are just resentful about having to use computers at all in general, but also they're, they're, they have to be really, really careful and defensive about procrastination because first of all, if, if all you do is read and sit and think and, and maybe write some of the time, you know, it's very easy to kind of fall into a well of procrastination where you just do nothing ever again. Yeah. So I, I don't, I mean, I feel like that makes them very wary of anything that looks like a pastime or a hobby or anything that looks time consuming is like a threat to a philosopher's career. I, I respect that, that, you know, that's a reasonable thing for them to be worried about. Um, but they're also uh, defensive about, the fact that other people think that they're just sitting in a room thinking and, and kind of twiddling their thumbs and drinking red wine and not doing any real work because <laughs> I, you know, I, I think philosophers worry that they're seen that way. And so they overcompensate for that by being sort of extremely sort of hyper serious workaholic types yeah. on the, on the whole course. I know exceptions. I mean, I don't mean to kind of tar everybody with that brush, but no, no, I mean, it's totally a understandable it's like, as a, as a, yeah. Uh, exactly. It, it, you can understand why people would be defensive about it, and then therefore why you would avoid doing anything that would make people, you know, 
people's assumptions come true essentially right i had i had so many philosophers once they started to i kept it i had to keep it a secret that i was starting to make games um and i started to, people started to gradually find out and they would say to me so apologetically like over and over again i would just hear them say look you know i'd love to play games i would love to i just can't like i can't trust myself right you know i just i it would be the it would be the ruin of me so i can't allow myself to play even one game but it seems and, it seems a shame though because there's such a rich or at least to me there there would appear to be a real kind of rich vein um within sort of just like playing the the playing of games like why people play games how people play games i feel like there's a lot to mine there from a, a philosophy standpoint there there is you know and 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 game designers that i know love philosophy and are conversant in philosophy and listen to all the philosophy podcasts so there's definitely some crossover there but this cultural thing really does uh, does stand in the way a lot i had a i had a colleague at oxford who was a who was a like a um, obsessive rock climber and ice climber. He'd take all his uh, family and his children ice climbing on the weekends. And I'd just written GURP while I was at Oxford, uh, my rock climbing game, and I yeah. tried to get him to play it. And he said, you know, it's, it's, it's as though you've said to me, uh, Nick, you know, I've designed some really good uh, crack cocaine and it's really, <laughs> really addictive, this stuff, and I think you should try it out. That was how he was hearing it when I was recommending that he he try my work. So... You know, I, that's the kind of that's what you're up against <laughs> in philosophy. So it was definitely, I I started to uh, over this period of time when I was I you know I had a, a two postdoctoral positions was one at Princeton and then one at at, at Oxford and I, I I kind of over that period of time was writing these games uh, like Quop and GURP for my for my website and uh, you know getting a nice response from the from the playing public but just absolutely either uh sort of keeping it to myself or just getting no um no positive response from my philosophical colleagues at all so what what prompted you to to, to start making games do you think you were rebelling against the the system a little bit i think well first of all as i mean as i said you know it was like a lifelong wish that was always too hard yes and i think that the thing that happened was when i was supposed to be writing my dissertation up in Melbourne, you know, I, and I knew at this stage I'd been I'd been uh, um, given the job at Princeton, so I and it was conditional on me graduating, so I had to finish my dissertation. So I was absolutely in the peak throes of uh, of procrastination, <laughs> and procrastination is very powerful and it enables you to do things like watch four seasons of Battlestar Galactica in two nights, uh, or to make a video game and and that was that was the thing that kind of it took along with this kind of burgeoning online community of people helping uh it that was what it took to to get over that hump and so yeah i made this game in flash very simple games a reinterpretation of the bonus game from uh, international karate plus by archer mclean uh, called Too Many Ninjas, where you're this samurai's rooted to the center of the screen and you're knocking the ninjas away as they as they bounce in towards you. Yeah. And I might have left it at that, except that I put it up online and it got covered in Kotaku. And it was like, it was very gratifying. It's very direct. So in a world of philosophy, I, let me put it to you this way. I left my job at, in Oxford in, I guess, 2013. 
And at about the time that I left, I submitted my final philosophy paper and it was accepted and is going to appear in print sometime this year. And that's the kind of timeline. <laughs> when you finish something, it takes three or four years for it to be read by anybody else. And then if you're lucky, if it was a great paper that was very well received, maybe a hundred people read it and maybe two of them say something to you about it. Or if you're wildly successful, maybe 200 people read it and 10 people say something to you. And it's very indirect. It just feels very, uh, it's, it's, it's not, it's not that it has no rewards and it's not that it's, it's not worthwhile, but this taste that I, w I got with this game being on Kotaku is like, I can m make something, put it out in the world and have it mean something to people in such a short space of time in such a kind of big way. Although, albeit, you know, a dumb, thin browser game. Um, and I think that sort of set off something in me. It was like a satisfaction that I felt like I needed to have again, that I wanted to continue. That's a but, classic you know, I had this, sort of gameplay was, loop there. <laughs> you've you've right, had exactly, to taste the rewards exactly. when you get back in. Exactly. But, you know, because I had a new job in, in you know, university and I was trying to figure out how to do all the things that I needed to do, it came in fits and, and spurts. And I had the luxury, I guess, as a designer of only needing to make games when I had a great idea for one. And that's, and, and, uh, that's, that's how it would work. I would, uh, I would think about it in my off hours and then in a kind of flurry of activity, make something, you know, in a week or a weekend, I mean, wouldn't eat all that much into my, uh, into my time as a philosopher. And was um, there any like correlation between the, the games and the philosophy? Like what sort of philosophy were you, were you involved in? I was in, involved in uh, kind of biomedical ethics as, a, as was my kind of main area. And the main project that I was working on over this time was a project on understanding why and how people are addicted to drugs and alcohol. So there is a little bit of an overlap here. I mean, it's yeah. mainly in just understanding addiction loops for sure. Um, so, but I was not making games that really expressed that. I guess it probably informs my practice as a You're game designer. On, like free to play uh, mobile apps. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> But I mean, it makes me think about things like uh, sort of intermittent reinforcement and yeah. rapid restart and all of those sorts of things that are that are kind of very important. Uh, the sort of ritual of, of play. Uh, so it probably informed that, but it was not like they were kind of directly crossing over. And in fact, it's more like it was the relief. It was like a. It was like the the downtime from, from working on philosophy was where I could think about something that was purely artistic and technical and not at all in the kind of realm of, of the, the logical in, in, in that sort of sense. Yeah. Um, that was, that was the kind of a relief for me. I feel like that would have been very like, useful as well as, as, as much as I can understand why philosophers would be reluctant to kind of, um, chase that dragon to use a terrible drug metaphor. Like mm. I, I imagine things, things like, uh, because because I, I write a lot and i find things not games obviously i play a lot of games but i think things that uh completely don't use my my brain at all like cleaning or jigsaws is a, a new thing that I've, I've got into because <laughs> it just it helps your brain just kind of tick over things especially i imagine if you're dealing with quite sort of lofty complex thought experiments as you would in philosophy yeah, there's a funny thing. I mean, I think that it's the same with any kind of writing, honestly, that you've got problems that need solving and you can't solve them by for force of effort, right? Yeah. And you can't solve them by sitting down and 
right, how am I going to, sometimes you can, sometimes it's a kind of problem where you really need to kind of write things down and think them through. But more often than not, it's a thing that your brain just needs to do in, in sort of, uh, unconsciously. And, uh, it's difficult to forgive yourself for just sitting there and twiddling your thumbs, right? You, you know, as a human being, you want to feel good about yourself. And that means having some kind of form of activity. And, uh, so I think that it's healthy for people who write for a living to have other things that they do. Um, but you know, over time, you know, I, I, so I, I moved from my, my position expired after three years, which was the maximum at, at Princeton. And then I, I went to Oxford and you know, that was good as well. But it was over this period of time, I start to, to do things like attend a game developer conference and, um, start to be, get all these speaking invitations at places like, uh, you know, RuffleCon uh, in, in the States. And what was the, the shift? And, was that sort of Quop? Because that obviously got a lot of coverage. Yeah. So I made Quop in 2008 while I was at Princeton. And then it really got picked up in 2010, shortly after I arrived at, at Oxford over that Christmas. Just suddenly, uh, through a kind of series of co sort of online coincidences, um, went viral and uh was suddenly this kind of big thing that everybody knew about and yes yeah, so, so a lot of a lot of um sort of speaking opportunities flowed from that and the opportunity to 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 show games in 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 public and the opportunity to fly around and actually meet people who had only known uh online and it just started to seem like uh that was working better than the philosophy stuff. Not that my career in philosophy was going badly by any means. You know, I had a grant supporting my, uh, my wage from the, from the Wellcome Trust. Yeah. I could have kept going on that for, for quite some time at good number of publications could have got a, uh, a permanent job somewhere. I'm, I'm sure, but it, it just, it started to seem less and less appealing compared to, uh, pivoting and doing games full time. And where, like, I feel like we, we should talk a little bit about Quop, like where did that come from? Because it's such a unique and really funny game, like genuinely one of the funniest games I think I've ever played. Like, was that an intention? That it was, was it intended to be funny? Yeah. Uh, no, but it was, a, it was like a, it was like a discovery. I, I, I haven't just insulted you terribly, have you? Have I? Oh no, no, okay, not at yes. all. <laughs> I, you know, I think it's important when you have a game that goes viral in a kind of random way not to try to take too much credit for it, right? <laughs> it's like I don't want to pretend that elements of it were intentional that weren't, but I do feel like uh, it it was it became it, it sort of showed it some it showed itself to me very quickly. So I'd written I'd written the cricket game Little Master Cricket, which is like a ragdoll uh, physics game in a similar vein, but one where the character is kind of rooted to the to the spot on the ground. Yeah. And it just occurred to me in like in the shower. Most of my ideas come to me in the shower. I was in the shower and I realized, well, I could untether him from the ground, and uh, I bet I bet I could make him run around, right? You know, by by just activating uh, the muscles, and that you know having having already built the cricket thing. It was a it was a work of you know four hours or so to get a prototype of of Quop, which is really not very different from the final version uh, up and running. And the prototypes was immediately it was a, it was because I didn't know what to expect uh, any more than anyone knows what to expect when they follow the link to play that game. It was as hilarious to me as it is to <laughs> to many people. And the addition uh, of Chariots of Fire was clearly the the punchline. Like that was yeah. That has to be an admission <laughs> that this is a silly game, but it's. Yeah, I think that wasn't even my 
I think that was a that was a suggestion of a TIG source forum member, although okay. I couldn't possibly say who. Um, but yeah, I showed I showed that, and uh, uh, I think the 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 name and the addition of Chariots of Fire. Well, it's not really Chariots of Fire. I should just say in case any of Vangelis' okay. lawyers are uh, listening, it's a it's a song that is inspired by Chariots of Fire. Um, <laughs> uh, but but yeah, that's the. That sort of just happened. It just was a thing that created itself, and it. I think uh, amongst the kind of flash games community, it was sort of it had a reasonable splash, and it was covered on a couple of websites in 2008. But then it just sat there, sort of ticking away uh, like a time bomb until 2010. That's really, really I didn't realize off. there was that there was that time uh, period where it just it wasn't the thing that it became. Yeah, I mean, I, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, I I it, I think. One of the things I often say about Quop is I think that that it's really crucial to its sort of viral success. I, again, this is not intended. This is just sort of post hoc kind of uh, ex- explaining. Um, is how shoddy the web page that it's on looks. <laughs> I think people come to it, they get linked to it, and it looks like an accident that it's there. It looks like a thing that nobody else would know about. Like you've gone to the kind of back end of the internet and you've found the worst game of all time, and that's. That's, I think, a big part of what makes the joke land, that makes the, the game funny, is that you don't know, don't feel like it's presenting itself as an intentional joke too much. <laughs> and, and that's it really, that's necessary. And I've been so reluctant to update it and to kind of fix my website because I don't want to kind of ruin that joke for people. That's amazing. Um, so, but I think it took a, like a, a, a couple of years or a year and a half anyway, 2008 to 2010, to... to to kind of marinate and get crappy enough to kind of have that effect. Because, uh, you know, the, web, the way web pages look changes massively from year to year. And web, websites that are two years old just look terrible. And, you know, you really, if you want your website to look professional, you have to update it constantly. So it was just giving it that, like, slight stink, like a slightly uh, fermented kind of look. <laughs> uh, was, I think it was probably one of the necessary components. That is fascinating. Um, th- 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 this is I, 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 I'm I'm reluctant to ask the question because I'm I'm wondering if it's uh, insulting in some way. I, I don't mean it to be. If it is, but that's oh, fine. You you have this um, uh, notoriety through Quap, and as you say, you go into all these kind of speaking arrangements. But at the time, you would have been relatively um, kind of new game developer, and certainly not would you even have classed yourself as a, a game developer because it was something you were kind of doing for, for fun on the side? Like, yeah, no, quite, not, not, quite, not at that um, stage, I guess. Would that not have been quite uh, terrifying in, in a certain way? I guess it should have been. Um, I, I, you know, I wasn't going to these events calling myself a game developer, I guess, or a game designer, at least not, a, not right away. Okay. And I think... It was fine, though, because I had just been through this series of experiences. So in the first place, uh, before, before, back when I was studying for my PhD in philosophy, of course, uh, I joined uh, a band. Oh, of course, yeah, we didn't talk about the band. Right, so that was a thing that, that my friends were doing and I, I uh, wanted to be a part of. And uh, so, yeah, I was... Uh, we, we rehearsed for six months and then our first show was at a pub which was known to take anybody and to like never have any audience so we could like just get some experience yeah 
And then the second show more or less is in front of 5,000 people at a festival because the recording was not done by the band. The recording was done by my friend who's a DJ at the time in that kind of uh, early aughts vein. Okay. Um, and we were doing the live version of his song. So there was this fan base for a band that had never played before. And so we had to kind of stand up in front of 5,000 people and, and, and play in front of them with sort of no prior experience, so that, which, was, which was terrifying. And I would say <laughs> I was terrified by it. I would wake up at 5 a.m. Uh, every day for the six months leading up to it when we knew it was going to happen, uh, just feeling panic. Did uh, it go as we okay? All did, I think. Yeah, well, the first, no, the first one was a disaster, but the second one was fine. Um, <laughs> well, so, that's good because the second that, one that, was thousands of okay. people, so that, that's, that's important. <laughs> right. Then towards the end of that, as I was sort of getting through my, my degree, I did another thing, which is I started making TV commercials for mobile phone ringtones with a friend of mine uh, in Sydney. He would drum up the business. This didn't come up in my research. This is, this is exciting. So, yeah, he, it, was the, it, was the hey, it was the absolute heyday of uh, the crazy frog bonanza. Okay. We were working as a client provider for the company that had like the, a competing product, which was Farting Monkey when I got started. And they would provide us with like uh, character assets and a script. And we would just make the ad from sort of start to finish and upload it to the TV station. It would be on TV. <laughs> are these, and it are would these be shown, online? You know, Can they watch? Can we watch them? No, no. Oh, my God. No, I hope never. <laughs> um, so bad. Uh, but, but, you know, it's it's again, it was kind of seat of the pants endeavor where we weren't TV producers and I wasn't a 3d animator or a person who was qualified to write jingles to be on TV. Um, and you know, we were doing a sort of a fly by night job, but we we did get it done. Yeah. And, um, it, it went okay. And then I had to go and be a philosopher at the kind of number one or number two you know, the most junior person, albeit the most junior and like least respected person at the number one philosophy department in the world. And just after a w- number of these sort of experiences, you stop worrying about whether you're qualified. And <laughs> I you start worrying for about... I made monkey ringtone. I can do anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, essentially, it's like, it's not that I can... I mean, it's, it was more I had, a, I had some confidence in my ability to figure things out. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, um, I, know, I know what you mean. So, you know, it wasn't me, I hope, at least I hope it was not perceived as me traveling around the world being like, oh, I'm a, I'm a serious game designer. Everybody should take me seriously. But I was getting invitations and I had things to say about yeah, it. No, I, so did, I, was, I didn't mean to put you know, that thought in your head. It just it occurred to me that you were doing this like relatively like early on in your sort of video game career. Yeah, it was it was early on, and you know, I mean, I had maybe one or two talks in me, this, and and then I kind of ran out for a while. You know, it's sort of like the ideas were sort of cashed out. But it was like, it, to give your first artist talk is not that bad because you have a whole lifetime. It doesn't matter which field you're in, yeah. whether or, you know whether it's video games or writing or music, you've got your whole lifetime of experience and preference formation and taste to to lean on for that. And it's only once you have to do the second and third artist talk that you then need to have like some actual kind of in-depth sort of professional experience to have something to talk about. Absolutely. And I find that when I'm listening to talks or, you know, podcasts with interviews of, of like new uh, junior developers, people who have recently broken through, 
it's never boring, right? I mean, it's never there's, it's never that they have nothing to say, even if they've only been on the scene for a year or two. Um, just like you think about that record by the the Strokes when they broke through. Oh, absolutely. And everybody yeah. was like, they sounded so kind of their records so articulate and so experienced sounding and everybody was so put out when it turned out that they were really young yeah i mean that's true um, of like most musicians like the first album yeah, to is generally the best because it's they as you say they have their whole life to, to prepare for that and then maybe a year for the next one yeah i'm just, i'm a fan of first films and first novels as well for this reason so um but yeah, I think to, to I mean the the answer to your question is I ought to have been more terrified of that than I was. Yeah. Um, but by dint of having had this experience sort of three times in a row just beforehand, it didn't even occur to me to be worried about that. <laughs> That's good. So That's probably I, for the best. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was fine. <laughs> Everything turned out okay. Um, so during this sort of whole period that we've kind of talked about the the games that that you've been making in your transition into to being a, a game designer were you still playing a lot of games yeah constantly constantly i never stopped and what what was sort of some because i mean that that's basically we've kind of jumped a couple of generations now and so were there games during that period that really kind of stood out for you as kind of being like changing your your perspective and your understanding of, of what a game could be the early aughts for me i guess is about having a gamecube and it being the first console that i had and really going heavily on that and, and playing all of the Nintendo games. And I really loved that console a lot. I think maybe even more so by by virtue of the fact that it was the first console that I owned. Yeah. Oh, it's an and, you know, I finally having money to be able to buy video games, and that was like a big deal for me. And then I had a PlayStation to follow that, and I played all of the wonderful games on, on that console. So that was an era of console gaming for me. Uh, always had a PC as well, but but it was really like that was where my focus was. Yeah. And then I think um, it must have been around, and then the Wii came out, and then it was around that time that we moved to America. And I had a Wii, which was fine, I suppose. And <laughs> but I started to get back into uh, to a little bit of PC gaming, and um, I never. I guess the thing that everybody was on board with at this time was the MMO. That was really when that was happening. Mm-hmm. And that totally passed me by. And I think, you know, it's I, I, to be fair to all of those philosophers who said that they wouldn't touch my games because it's too addictive and too dangerous. That's honestly the real reason why I've never played an MMO because I feel like I would be lost to it. And I have enough trouble with, with the like cookie clicker and, and candy box. Yep. Uh, I have enough trouble regulating my behavior with that i just feel like those incremental games if i added a social dimension it would just be very difficult for me to regulate so i've just always steered clear of that and it meant that i kind of missed out on a major wave of what happened in games at that time uh, but you know i was still playing all the console games that came out and i had a then i i you know a thing that happened uh, to me around that time is i um was on a forum it's a tim rogers's forum uh, uh, select uh, actionbutton.net which one of those is it select button I don't know. no select button is the forum is it's a very kind of uh, thoughtful intellectual forum com- compared to something like NeoGAF yeah but with the same kind of hostility and toxic culture that <laughs> NeoGAF has <laughs> but anyway I was I was they can reading just articulate that at the time it much and, better right well <laughs> no I it was very important to me they're they're really had their finger on the pulse of, of kind of things that were happening at the time. Somebody, yeah. 
linked to a video of Demon Souls, like a trailer video, a Japanese version at this stage, of course, wasn't getting an English release at that, at that time. And uh, I played maybe the first 15 or 20 seconds of that video and I stopped it. And then I ran down to Video Games New York and bought a co- like an import copy and went to Best Buy and bought a PlayStation. And then I played that for like, I don't know, like 100 hours in a row. I just knew it. It was like an interesting moment for me because it was like, I've almost never done that before in my life. Just seen a video game for like 10 seconds and just been like, I have to have that right now. Why do you think that Um, happens? I don't know. I mean, it it just, the video, I suppose, starts with somebody going upstairs and they're having to use, it it was a little bit like games I'd enjoyed in the past. So there's a game called uh, Severance Blade of Darkness. Uh, I think in some places it's just called Blade of Darkness, which is very much the same kind of thing. It's a third person uh, sort of like D&D style action game where you use shields and you can dismember people's arms and so on. And I'd played uh, Die by the Sword. Again, the same thing with like a physics basis. And, um, I'd, you know, I really loved one of one of my favorite games of all time is the belt scroller uh, Dungeons and Dragons Tower of Doom, which we had in the in the video arcade at, where, at my university when I was an undergraduate. And they're all in this vein, right? Like they're kind of heavily D&D inspired uh, crawl style action games where you heavily you careful you use a shield you have yeah. got traps you're kind of crawling through very slowly and trying to master the systems and I think I just saw in that in in that little fragment of Demon Souls just like the kind of perfect expression of what I liked about those games and so yeah I just was it was just instantly yes I'm going to go and buy that and it, I was not wrong it was it was definitely a major moment for me playing that game. And has that kind of sustained through the the various iterations since? It did, but I think with Dark Souls three, although I thought that was a good game, I f- I sort of finally started to feel like, oh yes, I've I've cashed this out. I've played too many hours of these games. They they did come quite thick and fast. To be fair, like, they did. They did. I think it's a, a formula that, period of time. I think it's a formula of a game that they can make quite quickly. I'm not sure that spacing them out would have made that much of a difference. I think just it was just I liked it so much. It's as though you know, I'm like this with passion fruit. If if I have like three pounds of passion fruit that I can sit and eat, I'll just eat them until my throat is raw and I just <laughs> never want to see another passion fruit again. It was like that. I just really, really loved Demon Souls. And then Dark Souls came out and it was like, how could this be even better than, than Demon Souls? It was just it was just exactly what I wanted. So that really defined those years. And the other thing, of course, that's happening at that time is uh, it's kind of enormous proliferation of indie games so i was really heavily into that playing almost everything that was coming out through that kind of scene and and not just uh sort of browser games and flash games but but every everything that that uh that came through at that time and and what prompted you to to actually make the decision to sort of split from philosophy entirely and just focus on games I guess it was the Christmas when Quop was really starting to get to be big. Had you already been kind of thinking about it, maybe? So this is 2010. It was like yeah. sh- it was six months after I arrived, and right before I'd left New York to go to Oxford, I had become aware of the NYU Game Center, which started to be holding sort of indie-facing uh, lectures, and I went to one or two of them, and so I was aware of that, and. I was like, I have to say, you know, Oxford's sort of wonderful and magical in a weird idiosyncratic way, but I was just sort of heartbroken to have left 
New York. I really love New York. Really sort of it's perfect for me in a way. Yeah. So um, you're, you're thinking about like, is there a way in my life that I'm going to be able to get back there? And, you know, it was right after kind of Quop had blown up and I had my friend visiting me in, in Oxford, the one that I had tried to make No Man's Sky with back when we were undergraduates. <laughs> And he, was, he just suggested offhand, you know, why don't you apply for a job uh, at NYU? And I just like just hadn't crossed my mind. And they weren't hiring at the time. But uh, a little bit of time, they kind of ruminated on that for a while. And the kind of idea was sort of in my head. And then I guess maybe like 2011 or so, I spoke to uh, Frank Lance just to let him know like, hey, if you are ever hiring, let me know because um, I'd be interested and I think, you know, there was some luck there because as well as being a, a person who, who liked my, my games, Frank uh, is also a big fan of philosophy and a huge fan of cut copy as well. So I oh, had a kind of trifecta. Everything is in your favor there. So I, I made more efforts to kind of come out here and, and give talks and get to know people and sort of really worked hard on making that transition. It was just a thing that happened over a long period of time and I wasn't sure it was going to happen until uh, 2012. Um, but... But yeah, I mean, it was uh, it's maybe the only one of those things. I mean, talking about all of these different things that I sort of fell into and uh, found myself in a situation having to play a rock show or make a TV commercial, whatever it may be. Uh, this is the the change that I had some authorship over that I felt like I was making happen in a deliberate yeah. way. So that was like a different moment for me than what had happened in the preceding sort of 10 or 15 years. And do you think that's not that you're settled now, but do you think you, you would move away from academia entirely just to focus on um, making games? Or do you, do you like that kind of the, the, the sort of structure and the the The, the structure is good for me, for sure. I, I'm not, I've never made like a really huge game project. We made Sports Friends was a reasonably substantial thing that launched on multiple platforms. Uh, but, you know, I, I was only responsible for my part of that, which is relatively small. So if I had a project that was so big that I didn't think I could do it alongside an academic job, I could imagine doing that. But, you know, for now, it's it's great. I'm really enjoying it. I think that the teaching is sort of necessary structure for me so that I can continue to do my creative work in a way that doesn't become sort of like... I don't think I can survive the sort of uh, the tortured artist melting down in a in a room thing that that some people yeah. do. Um, I, it's important for me to have people around me and to have some kind of intellectual and social life around what I'm doing. So it's perfect from that point of view. That sounds wonderful. I've got a, a couple of of quick fire questions for you, Ben. Okay, to go finish for it. on. Well, relatively Not quick fire. So th these don't have to be super quick fire, but they're they're, they're designed to be, but they don't have to be. Um, okay. Bennett, what game are you best at? Um, let's see. I, I guess that I'm, you know, just by virtue of the fact that I'm so tilted towards playing things broadly rather than deeply, I'm not that good at any game. I think it's fair to say I would never claim to be like top tier at anything, but I can, uh, I can one credit, uh, 720 degrees, the old, uh, Atari arcade game um, with a reasonable number of gold medals. So, so that's that. And I think out of all the people that I know, uh, if you want a more recent game, there's a there's a game on the iPhone called Pancake by Philip Stollenmeyer, 
think I've I've got the top slot about out of all of my friends on on that. I'm really really good at pancake. Um, but other than that, yeah, I think generally I tend to just be satisfied being bad at games. This is interesting, actually. Are you are you good at quap? I can get about halfway down the track at quap. Um, I don't consider it to be playing quap if you inch down the track on one knee. So we're talking about actual proper yeah. run. But that, yeah, that, yeah. That, so that's decent, De- decent. I can get decent at games. I just never be good at them. I just just it just occurred to me there because like like probably everybody else that's played quap, I. I, I struggle. I, I fall and I laugh and I, I enjoy that experience, but I've never, right. never been good at it. But as someone who's making it, I feel we just like, oh well, people are just going to be rubbish at this, and that's the that's the beauty of it. When I make games, I always assume there's going to be people out there who are ten times as good as me. So if I can get one tenth of the way down the track, then I've tuned it about right. <laughs> um, so I never worry too much about that. I try to make sure it's technically possible. Uh, I guess I, you know, I, I finished. Uh, Stephen Sausage Roll uh, by by Stephen Lavelle. So that's that, impressive. That's quite an impressive. Uh, I might have even been one of the first three people to finish that. So I I think I'm good at that game as well. Okay, well on a similar subject, and I imagine probably a similar answer. Um, what game have you have you played the most? I you know I played a lot of Stephen Sausage Roll, but you know it, it, it has an end, so it it wouldn't have been that much. I'd say the 80s game I played the most, probably Elite. Uh, just It was the only kind of roguelike, grindy game that I had. Yeah. So it just, it's natural. Um, in terms of recent games, I guess it's Dark Souls, which I played through many times. Um, not as many as, as, as some of my friends and colleagues, but you know, for me, it's a really substantial number of, of hours. And then I, I, I think about kind of back in the early 2000s, late 90s, Counter-Strike was a game that I, I used to play nightly for a certain amount of time. I got to the point where if I played, you know, at midday on a week a weekday, uh, I could I could top the server. <laughs> but if I played it at actual real time, I would never I would never <laughs> have that kind of success. But I feel like that was good enough to kind of actually understand what what getting good at Counter-Strike would mean. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I've, I've, I've played a, a bunch of that as well. And then I, I guess over time though, I, I've really kind of grown tired of shooting guns in games and I really can't derive much enjoyment from it. So I, it's not likely to happen again. And is there, has there ever been a game that you've had to kind of, um, kind of remove from your life because it was becoming an obstacle? I mean, this is something that's come up a lot. And I imagine with your, uh, perhaps with your, your sort of research and um, into mm. addiction as if you would have kind of noticed certain things that you were actually maybe not like the fact that you didn't play an MMO. Yeah, I mean, I think avoiding MMOs was a step towards not having to really remove something from my life. Yeah. I've never had to delete something or block it from myself like that because it was becoming a problem. But I certainly playing Candy Box. My life was just consumed for a few days. Uh, playing uh, a dark room. My life was consumed for whatever, like the one day it took to play that. Um, so I, I, I easily fall, fall victim to incremental games where a small number goes up constantly. <laughs> Something <laughs> that my uh, my brain just seems to to have an infinite appetite for. Um, if if you're if you've ever been so inclined to to do this, what was your worst rage quit? I've only rage quit a game one time. 
I don't rage quit when I lose. I'm too bad at games for that. I, if I did that, I couldn't play them at all. Yeah. So I'm really, really patient with losing. It's fine. I can, I can suck at a game forever. It's totally fine with me. But I played Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword. And uh, I guess the tutorial goes for about 20 hours. People kept telling me, oh, it gets good after the tutorial. So I kept persevering. And I was finally at that section of that game, which I don't even know if it's towards the end. It might be halfway through. It might be 90% of the way through where you're underwater swimming around trying to collect musical notes in order. And if you take too long, it resets you and you have to do it again. Mm -hmm. It's this incredibly kind of like the feeling of it. It's just kind of viscerally horrible feeling trying to orient yourself and swim around in this kind of tar-like water and these, these notes that try to get away from you. And it, you've just done all of these quests where it made you do the exact same thing three times in a row for no particular reason other than padding and you're like okay finally a different thing and it turns out to be this thing where you're chasing these notes underwater and doing it over and over again i just i just felt myself going pink in the face and i realized <laughs> that nintendo had pushed me too far after kind of like years of sort of incrementally being more insulting with their games and I just got up and I switched the Wii off and I unplugged it from the TV and I put it in a drawer and later threw it away. And uh, it's that Wii, wherever it is, still has Skyward Sword in the in the drive. <laughs> I have not forgiven them for it either. I just will remain extremely angry about that game. Oh, that is, that is a shame. That is a shame. And also perhaps one of the more kind of cold and considered rage quits of ever you've got to rage quit you've got to you've got to really quit yeah no, really commit to that anger controller and <laughs> <laughs> um what game has made you laugh the most um well you know i i i i guess i i did get uh some laughs when i was when i was making co-op that's definitely that was a that was a thing that happened there. Certainly, been other people's answers on the show. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, I have laughed uproariously at a couple of uh, a couple of, of multiplayer games, much more so than than co op. Um, so one of them is I mentioned before is uh, is called Off the Wall. Uh, it's the Bally Sente game. And as I say, like, I think it's a similar kind of slapstick humor. And it's a, slapstick is a kind of humor that, that games do well and easily because they're yeah. simulations. So often they're simulations and they can, they can just bend reality in kind of slapstick ways. And that game just has some nice touches as well. If you hit the tennis ball into the other player's head, his head like bounces like it, it flaps back and forth like it's, <laughs> like it's made of elastic. And I played that with my brother years ago and, and – laughed until we were both crying it was just it was sort of unexpected it was in a it was in a main rom set that we didn't know about and came upon it and it was like like i was saying with quap discovering it at the kind of at the at the arse end of the of the internet this was like that it's kind of feeling of uncovering something you weren't supposed to see <laughs> that was just an amazing experience um and similar experience again with my brother we were playing uh warrior wear smooth moves on the wii and there is a bonus game. It's not part of the main game called Bungie Buddies, where uh, it's like an infinite runner where you one player holds the Wiimote and the other player holds the the nunchuck connected to it. So you're, you're sort of tethered together. It's like the idea of a bungee rope. Mm -hmm. And 
all you do is hold your arms down by your side and jump when you want the character to jump and just detects the jerk in the in the thing so it's just that you're standing side by side watching the tv <laughs> and uh and just jumping and there was just something about that it was just like it was a kind of a one of those glorious moments of motion control like really at its best yeah uh, motion control games have a way of breaking social rules. It's one of the nice things about uh, Johann Sebastian Joust, albeit that's not a funny game, but it has that same ability to kind of create, sort of break down existing social rules and spaces and, and kind of reconfigure them. And in this case, it was just doing that to amazing comic effect. So I just remember that as being one of the funniest moments I've played. <laughs> um, I'm laughing, literally imagining that. So... Um... <laughs> I, I think we've covered everything there, Bennett. That was excellent. If there's anything that we haven't mentioned that you wanted to bring up, then then please do now. No, absolutely not. That's been absolutely fantastic talking to you, Declan. Thanks so much. That was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> okay. Where can people play your games and see your things on the internet? Uh, people want to play my uh, games, either downloadable or uh, or online. There are links at www.foddy.net. Um, if you want to play multiball, my newest thing. You need to come to a festival or a party or a, a, a conference near you. I'm sure it'll be shown at a lot of different places around. What we, all we've announced so far is that it's going to be at XOXO in Portland uh, next week. Looking forward. Well, I'm, I'm saying I'm looking forward to that. I'm not going to be there, but I'm looking forward to <laughs> ultimately uh, trying that. Mm-hmm.